everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. Today, we're doing a bit of a throwback to the No Regrets Men's Conference 2020. This conference was on February 1st, and it's an annual event designed to create an environment for men to be challenged in their relationship with the Lord at home, in the workplace, and in their ministry. In this episode, we're going to listen to a talk by our senior associate pastor, Lloyd Biddle. He shares some of his experiences over the years raising a family when both he and his wife are also very dedicated to their vocations and how God has blessed their marriage and helped them work it out. If you want to continue to learn and be challenged on topics like these, save the date for High Point Church's Sexuality Everywhere Conference on October 9th and 10th, 2020. As always, if you've got a question about what you heard, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Getting ready um, this week uh, to, uh, to have this uh, talk. Um, I was thinking about my wife and my marriage of uh, 30 years, and um, what a blessing uh, God has been in in that marriage. And um, there's a there's some things that we've kind of learned over the years that I wanted to share with you. Um, so I want to talk about um, how. God can bless you in such a way that uh, over the years of your marriage, uh, you and your spouse, who may also feel like they've got a, a vocation that's really important to them, how both of you can raise a family, serve the Lord, and be fruitful in your career, okay? So that's where I'm going. Now, when, when I got married in 1989, I just uh, celebrated 30 year anniversary last May. When I got married in 1989, I didn't know, realize I was marrying a Christian recording artist. I didn't realize I was marrying a Fortune 500 executive. I didn't realize I was marrying an entrepreneur. Uh, I was 25, my wife was a little bit older. That wasn't on the radar screen. That wasn't necessarily, I know it says, you know, to death do you part, right? All that stuff, but that wasn't on my radar screen. And when she married me, she had no idea that I was going to quit my job as a banking officer in downtown Chicago and become an insurance agent. That wasn't in the plan, right, for her. And then it wasn't in the plan when I told her about uh, seven years ago that I was going to quit being a director of life sales at American Family and be a pastor. Okay? That wasn't in the ball game, right? And so life throws at you these different changes. And if your marriages are going to be strong and if you're going to be fruitful for God, you've got to be able to roll with that. So today, over this 45 minutes, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my life and about how God um, intersected some major, took me through trials and tribulations that really just strengthened me and my wife in our marriage. Uh, to start, I want you to have the perspective about being a wife that we get in Proverbs 31. So I want to read... Proverbs 31, uh, 15, uh, 10 through about 17, right? If you got your Bibles, you can turn. If you don't, it's no, it's no big deal. Some of you will be familiar with this passage. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. And do, how many of you, raise your hand if you're married. Raise your hand if you're married. It's virtually all of you. How many of you consider your wife to be the most valuable thing God has given you other than Jesus, Right? More valuable than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. 
She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. Uh, she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark, provides food for her family, portions for her serving girls. Let's check this out, 16. She considers a field and buys it. And out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. And so uh, we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit near the end. But Proverbs gives us this picture of a woman that's not just a little quiet, little 1950s homemaker kind of babe. Right. And I'm not and I'm not knocking that. So if you've got a wife in in your marriage, you've got a homemaker and she's a homemaker. For 30s, praise the Lord. I think there's some things I can share that will help you with that. But if you if you don't like like probably most of us have wives that work either out of necessity or because they want them, they just feel like God has given them something valuable to do. My wife is in that 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 latter period. For some years of our marriage, she would stay at home and work for 10 years. And now she's like knocking the doors down in terms of her career at this point. Now my kids are moved on. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what God has shown me through our life story. What did you want to be? This is my wife, Deborah. Uh, she probably was in uh, second grade, right? You have these great ideas, and this is me, right? <laughs> and I grew up in Chicago watching Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and Ron Sandler. And I, I wanted, what did I want to be? A ball player. I wanted to be Gail Sayers or something, right? Um, but life brings you different things. The top part, uh, we met at the University of Illinois. My wife was studying economics. I was studying business. I grew up in Chicago. She's from Waukegan. Uh, In college, she changed her major. Uh, I started in finance. I started and stayed. This is when I was a freshman. I walked into what was the U of I bookstore. I'll never forget it. Uh, Front of the door here. Walked in. Saw this beautiful co-ed over by a book rack. And I'm, I'm very shy at this time in my life, and I was like, man, she is awesome, right? <laughs> now, uh, that was my wife, Deborah. Uh, I never really met her until the second semester. I was pledging a fraternity, and one of my fraternity brothers had dated her. He wasn't dating her then, but he had in the past, and he sent me on an assignment to get something from her. That's when I actually met her for the first time. But I never will forget that picture I had of this young woman that, that just struck me. I, I later learned that there was much more beneath the surface, much more important things. But you were by a bookstore, I, uh, and we didn't say hello. I, I didn't. I saw her, but I didn't, I didn't speak to her. My wife must have thrown that in. Um, I met Deborah at, 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 in her dorm, uh, career-wise. I, w- I was studying finance. But I had no clue. Then my, my, my parents were in college as a kid. My dad was a uh, postal worker. My mom cleaned airplanes. I had no clue what I was going to do. I was a resident advisor in one of the big dorms. And once a year, the president of the university would have student leaders come by. And I sat, I happened to be at Stan Eichenberry, who was the president at the time, table. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to go into banking. He was like, great. I know the president of First National Bank of Chicago at that time one of the top five banks in the country. And I know the guy who's the president of the local bank in Champaign, and I'll get you connected. And he did. And they didn't think I was any good, so he didn't hire me at First National Bank. But I got the vision of starting in banking. So the other large bank in Chicago did hire me, Continental Bank. But that was from meeting Stan Eikenberry. Uh, my wife started working at Xerox and Customer Service. Then she graduated from MBA with, from Keller. 
school. Um, I did an internship at, at Northern Illinois Gas and Finance. They gave me some experience. I started my first job uh, as an auditor at Continental Bank. Now, I was a finance major. I learned that I hated working with numbers. Come on. <laughs> How many of you started in a career because you knew you could get a job? Come on, you studied it because you knew, you know, there's construction or I'm going to become a police officer or a fireman because I can get a job. Then you start, you're like, I hate this stuff, right? And that's exactly kind of what happened to me. I spent my first five, six years crunching numbers, creating reports, and hated every minute of it. And that's why I left the bank to go into insurance, selling something I had never done before. I just knew I hated the other job. <laughs> we began dating in 1987. I didn't date my wife in college. It was good because I wasn't a Christian. Now, I was raised a Catholic. I knew, I had heard the gospel. I had heard about Jesus. I was baptized, confirmed a Catholic, didn't know the Lord. One day I was driving home from work after I had uh, finished uh, college. And the Lord, I was dating two girls at the time. Not, not holy relationships. Uh, all in college. I did what college guys do. They don't know Jesus. You know, drinking, partying, having fun, that kind of stuff. And I didn't, I didn't realize I was a sinner. People would have said, who knew me earlier before that, would have said, nice kid, loves his parents, obedient. But when I got to college, I found out I was wild as anybody else. So came back to college, still wild, but now with a job. That's probably more dangerous, right? Now I got money to do crazy stuff, right? And, but I was driving home, and I just felt this conviction of the Holy Spirit about how sinful I was. And then I remembered... Every mass, the priest would say, uh, and took the bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, take this, brothers, and take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which was given to you for the forgiveness of sins. When supper was over, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks and prayed, gave the cup to his disciples, and said, take this, all of you, and drink of it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It's shed for you and for all of men, so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. Now, I heard this since I was four years old. All the way up to 1819, I was at Mass regularly, heard the gospel. I didn't apply it to me. But now that I was confronted with the fact that I was a sinner, I was like, oh, that's how I can get this guilt off me. He died for me. And I gave my life to Jesus then. And fortunately, that after then is when I started connecting with Deborah, because if I hadn't been, I wouldn't be here talking about succeeding in marriage. I'd be here talking about failure. What a tremendous failure I was. Because all I knew then was how to have multiple women and be, you know, irresponsible. Um, 87, after I came to Jesus uh, earlier that year, uh, we started, I dated her for the first time. We were engaged a year later. We were living in, I was living in Chicago. She was in Motorola. She was in Schaumburg, Illinois at the time. Uh, I started uh, getting an MBA in the banking business. Uh, you need to get an MBA if you want to advance. This is the this is the eighties. In fact, companies paid for it. Oh my God! How many of you had a, a graduate paid by a company? Raise your hand. There's a couple of you. It's rare now. It's almost impossible now. But then, back in the eighties, it was a thing. So my MBA was paid by uh, Continental Bank and Citibank. Uh, then I got pregnant, and here's when I became a man. My wife and I got married when I was a. Uh, I got married at 24, and um, uh, very two months after we were married, my wife got pregnant, 
and um, we weren't using any birth control, so of course that's a possibility, right? So, so right? <laughs> so she got pregnant, and I was like, oh my God, you know. And my, my dad's a very practical guy. He was like, oh, wait, you're not ready for this. And I was like, Dan, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't need to make sure that confidence, make sure that more confidence, Dan. You know? uh, but as she was pregnant, I got more and more used to the idea. And as we went and they took the, 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 the what do they call those pictures? Oh, so I was like, I'm more and more confident this was good. Um, about four and a half months in, late at night, my wife was like, her water burst. And so we were living in Westchester, Illinois. We scrambled to our hospital, which was 30 minutes away. Got to the hospital. <coughs> They're like, we can't stop this. And we're not set up to, to handle a birth this early. So they sent me to a hospital in Arlington Heights. It's about 30 minutes away. They put her uh, an emergency vehicle, and I drove and went over there. 24 hours later, uh, Christian Nicole is born, uh, Millie. And they put her to take her put her in those neonatal machines, things coming all out of her, you know, wires and warm environment and doctors working feverishly. And the doctor, an Indian woman, don't remember her name, came to me and said about maybe an hour after she was born, she said, Lloyd, she's not, she's just not going to make it. And I'm 24 years old. I don't, I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for her, my wife to be pregnant. <clears throat> I sure wasn't prepared to lose a baby at four and a half months or whatever. Baby, new baby smell, head full of hair. You can you can hold her for the last 20 minutes, but she's she's gonna die. And uh, that's what so Debbie, having just been in labor for over 20 hours, tired. I don't know, two in the morning, something like that. And they bring the baby in and we hold Millie until she dies. As you can imagine, my wife was devastated. Her mom and dad were at the hospital. Uh, I didn't really have any supports. Uh, maybe three, four hours of comforter. She said, well, you, you go home. I, I, I need to sleep. You go home. I said, like, go home? Go home and do what? So I, I went home to our apartment in Westchester. I tell you, I was, uh, I was, uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. The place was empty, I was lonely, and I was a newer Christian, so I wasn't really, I didn't know how to encourage myself in the Word, I really just didn't know. So I grabbed my Bible and just flipped it open, and don't do this, I don't, I don't encourage for your own spiritual education, that's probably not the best thing, but God was gracious to me that day. And I got to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just flipped it open. And it happened to be the passage where Paul is talking about what happens when a Christian dies. And this is what I got. But some may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant a body that will be just a seed, perhaps a weed or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And each kind of seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men are have one kind of flesh, animals another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are also earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is more of one kind and the earthly bodies of a different kind. 
The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another. So it will be in the resurrection of the dead. 42. Now, uh, I went to Resurrection Catholic Grammar School. Resurrection. That made sense to me. Just coming out of Catholicism, really, to that. I understand resurrection, life from the dead. So it will be in the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown in per is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And so I got this passage and I was like, oh, I'm going to see Millie again. That's one of the benefits of being a Christian is we don't die without hope. Our hope is, is, is a certain hope in a risen Savior who through the Holy Spirit given to us, we are able to partake in that. I, I do have hope. She is dead. She's not coming back. <clears throat> but Jesus is going to raise me and our child from the dead. And I needed that hope because I was struggling. I was baffled. I was hurting. And uh, then I got my wife to the apartment. She goes to the apartment. Here's when my wife turns to me. She says, Lloyd, I don't want to go into that apartment without that baby. So it was rough the next few weeks. Fortunately, she had off work and folks ministered to her. And um, in weakness, earlier our speaker was talking about how God uses your weakness to strengthen you. God had to humble me about life. What I learned from that experience is I didn't control life. I didn't control my own life in terms of timing and in, in, in terms of having children. And so I was even more cemented. We never used birth control. Uh, we never used it. Uh, we went five years before the first kid was born, before I actually had a, a pregnancy, and another five before the second, because that's what God gave us, and we were just content with that. Uh, that, that. That birth, that humbling experience, that being able to have God minister to me and then me minister gently to my wife, that was what I needed. That was when I went from being a boy to a man, 24, 25 years old. So we're, we're finishing grad school and doing some career stuff. Um, one of the cool things that God did in our lives is right before we got married, a group of about nine, ten of my friends, who none of us very, very well steeped in the scripture, said, we want to study what the Bible has to say about marriage. And I don't know, we studied Ephesians 5 and Genesis and some of the key passages. And of that group of ten couples, nine of them are still married to this day. And so what we learned is that, that we needed to decide that we were going to marry, commit and purpose to stay together. Uh, marriage has these highs and lows and how you function in the midst of them will determine whether you have a good marriage. Literally this last weekend, I buried my brother, Robert, 52 years old, uh, worked for Michigan State University. Um, had a had a, a stroke and died. Came back to Madison, young couple, 29 years old, uh, baby born with a heart defect, and at 11 months, their child had to die, die. Now, when we have those situations in our lives, these crises, losing jobs, losing children, losing parents, the normal stuff that happens to every person, whether they're a Christian or not, the issue of what will we succeed depends upon um, whether we turn towards God and each other or whether 
uh, we turn against each other. One of my favorite athletes of all time uh, is Julius Irving. Julius Irving um, met a woman in New York, grew up in New York, met a woman, got married, had five kids. Uh, his oldest son um, uh, died. He, had, he was, uh, had a history of drug problems. They sent him to the store to buy some bread, drove off a cliff into the water, died. And this, his woman, he loved his wife. They had five wonderful kids, and they couldn't recover. That just sunk the marriage, right? If my wife died, or if my son, I love my two sons, 25 and 20, I believe that Christ has, has built in me enough maturity that my marriage and my, my own faith could sustain. What about you? Could your relationships sustain like your baby, your, your beloved daughter dying? Do you have enough faith in, in God that you could sustain that? Um, can God trust you with that kind of pain and you still love your wife and family and still love him? Commitment, highs and lows, through the highs and lows. Uh, I quit my job at, 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 at the bank and joined the American family. Dropped my pay in half. My wife thought I was crazy, kind of. My wife is getting up the rounds at, going up the ladder at Motorola. My son was born at five years, our fifth year wedding anniversary. Again, no pregnancies after that first one. So my wife is getting nervous. She's getting in her 30s. And if any of you have a wife in 30s that wants a baby, raise your hand. Come on, man. You ever have a wife that just, she's got to have a kid? Lord have mercy. That's been one of the tryingest times. Um, I wanted to have a child, but I didn't, it didn't, it wouldn't define me. But for for a lot of women, it really defines their womanhood, right? And you have to manage through some of that. We had a, a child. Um, <laughs> So I'm uh, 30 years old. You see that bewildered face? That's really how I felt. I was like, oh, my God. Uh, what am I going to do with this baby, this Jason, my firstborn child? Okay. Uh, if, thank God, uh, we, we were, my wife worshiped together, prayed together on a regular basis, really steeped in the Lord. So I, I grew out of that phase to actually love having a, a, a kid. Now, what happens when, you're, when your wife is busy? working really hard and both of you are working 60 hours a week or more, or 50 hours a week or so, is you begin to prioritize things that matter. Um, my house wasn't always clean during these years and I had to be cool with that. Uh, I didn't always have a meal at six o'clock, right? And I had to be cool with that. Sometimes she would call me, Lord, bring something home on the way back, right? And so here is where your, our, our individual selfishness needs to, um, needs to give way to what's really important. What's really important is that we're growing a family together. What's really important is that we love each other. What's not really important is that I get all the, my, what I felt needs met. Or, in her case, the same for her, right? Stuff can wait. Priorities are important. Uh, so wifey's moving up the chain. I am too. Uh, and something really strange happens in 1997. The Lord called me to preach the gospel. Hmm. Now, you have to understand, I was a Catholic, and this whole notion that the Spirit of God would talk to you, that they didn't teach that in the Catholic classes. <laughs> and, uh, but when I was 22, 
I, I, I became a Christian. I actually was baptized in a Baptist church about five years later. And then God did something after I made that step of obedience and baptism. One of the things he did was he called me to, to preach the gospel. And uh, I went to the, my pastor and I said, hey, pastor, I really, it's been a year now. I was disobedient. I heard this about a year. It wasn't audible voice. It was in my mind. Uh, Lord, you preached the gospel. I was like, what? You're talking to somebody else? Uh, but he just kept going. So much so that I was losing sleep. And so I uh, finally said, okay, I'll, I'll at least talk to my pastor about it. I said, pastor, I think I might be called to preach. And I said, okay, great. He said, go work with this deacon in the Salvation Army ministry and <laughs> preach over there. And that's what I did. Did my first sermons to homeless men. Was the greatest, wonderful experience that I could have had. Um, rituals. What are the rituals that you have in your marriage that, that make things work? Here's one of the things that keep my marriage together. We pray. In fact, this morning, I'm a, I'm a morning person. My wife is a late night. She can work through the nights. I'm dead at 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, I start at 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. And she just starts clicking in. Her, her, she works with you on your own business. Her best work is between 8 p.m. and like 3 in the morning. Right? This morning I got up to come and I went, the first thing I had to pray. Now I was going to pray and she was going to stop me. So let me pray for you. She prays for us, all the men who would be coming, all the speakers, that this session would have something profitable for you. That prayer, that morning prayer, we don't leave the house without praying with, with each other. When my kids were young, we would grab them together. We would pray and then I would hug them, my kids. My dad was a World War II vet, really tough, not very. He loved me, but he wasn't loving. You follow me with me? Oh, yeah. A lot of men, some of us are even like that. I wanted to, to, um, I wanted to build affection in my parenting as a dad. So we would have prayer and family hugs. And uh, so, so that we, we prayed with our kids through teenage years. They didn't leave without prayer. And that, is, that rituals, date nights, every week. I lived in uh, within a 30 minutes of my parents, so we could drop off kids and do dates. Every quarter, there was a phase in my 30s, making a boatload of money, my wife was too, so we could just, we could go and every quarter go check into a hotel for two or three days and just take care of each other. Date nights. Uh, if your parents are close, what do I got? I'm good. If your parents are close, if your small group, how many of you are in a small group? Um, raise your hand if you have kids at home. Uh, keep your hands raised up, kids at home. How many of you have kids that can watch your younger kids? So the rest of you got young kids and you don't. I want to pray for you guys. Keep your hands up real quick. Lord, bless these men with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, family that will babysit, so that they can be connected with their wives in a special way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. I have found that if you do not nurture the intimacy in your relationship, um, what will happen is you'll get to be about my age, your kids will leave the home, and you'll find you have no, you have no connection with your wife. All you've been doing, and doing a good job, raising kids, loving kids, but now you don't have any relationship with your wife. We never made that mistake. We always dated. Last night, we went to go see Just Mercy, took her to dinner, uh, date night every week, for sure. At least that. Rituals we were talking about. Rituals. Develop and keep rituals. 
My wife is uh, quit work, um, became a consultant at a school district, uh, started recording gospel music and selling her own projects. Um, I'm the executive producer. That just means I'm paying it right off. <laughs> I'm the executive producer. Uh, but I'm, I'm her biggest fan. My wife was singing since she was in, in a church since she was 15 years old. She's singing at the church now. She leads a band at our church. That's what she was born to do that. She sends you an email and has some song in there about worshiping God. That's what she does, right? If I wasn't behind that, we wouldn't have much of a relationship, right? If she wasn't behind my preaching ministry, right, it'd be tough. So we got we to gotta, uh, back each other. <clears throat> One of the coolest things we did was we started a ministry called Reasonable Service in the New King James Version. Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, verse 1 talks about um, that, that uh, co uh, committing your, your life to God is a reasonable service. And, and NIV is your read, it's something else, it's a little bit different translation. In New King James, it says when you give yourself, it's the reasonable, it's the least you could do. So we started a ministry called Reasonable Services Ministry, did marriage conferences. Um, we, this ministry was active until I became a full-time pastor. Then I had no time for it. I became a full-time pastor in 13. But this business still exists. Maybe one day we might do some stuff with it. Mm -hmm. She recorded her music. We did marriage conferences with it. You know what it does? It kept us doing stuff together. How many of you have uh, an abiding passion that you can share with your spouse? Now, you don't have to have one, but it helps. Something where you can do it together that in serving the Lord in it, and that if you both feel like you're doing what God would have you to do, we've had that. That's helped us over our 30 years. Missions. Got to trust God in your work. Like most men, uh, I went to Kellogg and I learned how to uh, move up the corporate ladder and make a lot of money. But I didn't really learn uncommon leadership, uh, how to serve people first, how to build other folks up, how to be selfless in, in, in going about things, how to do good work just because of doing good work, because good work in itself was honoring to God. That I learned at church. At Kellogg, I learned how to move up the channel and, and make good money. One thing God showed me, I was at a pivotal point in my career in American Family, and, but there was a mission opportunity to go to Haiti. And, uh, but it, I, was, I was in sales, and I needed, this was a core part of you when I needed to make some numbers. And I was a manager. I had 30 agents working for me. But I was going to go to this mission trip at a point when I really needed my team to produce. And I was really scared about it. But I went anyway. Uh, blessed uh, this church in Haiti. And we were building uh, benches for the, for the church. Had a wonderful time. Learned some things there. And came back, and my business, boom. God had it. So my best months were when I was gone. Say, that's what God will do. When we put him first, um, he will take care of all of the things, right? Uh, don't worry about what you will wear, what you will eat. Even the heathens worry about that. But you seek him first in his righteousness, and all of these things will be taken care of. God will wants us to thrive in our businesses, and if we serve him first, he will take care of the stuff. I took care of his business, and he took care of my little business. 
and the year thrived. It takes a village to raise a family. This is my, uh, this is my family. My younger brother wasn't in this picture, he, who died recently, unfortunately. But it takes a village, right? Grandparents, nannies, childcare, daycare, siblings, friends. Um, how many of you consider your, how many, how many of you are introverts like me? Raise your hand if you're introverted guys. Where God is working with me now is he has me being the congregational care pastor at my church. I used to run the small groups ministry. I'm an introvert. I'm running the small groups ministry. Six hundred adults, man. It's killing me. It's killing me. Right? All these people that want to talk to talk. <laughs> we need to be uh, we need to be connected with with a core group of men who know us intimately and, and love us. And uh, even when you're an introvert like me, you got to force yourself out of your shell, be connected to other folks. Uh, I was 40. This is my 40th birthday. Uh, my wife, Deborah, my son, my oldest son, Jason, is the oldest one there, and Jared. One of the things is that when we got, as our careers were going, we didn't want to take jobs where we had to travel a lot. We checked ourselves when we began to put our work ahead of our families. Um, we, we decided that our family was more important. I read a book that I can, want to commend to you from Patrick Lencioni. It says, three questions for a frantic family. One of your handouts is in there. Open your handout. Three questions for a frantic family. Patrick Lencioni is a, is a uh, small business uh, consultant. Um, on the back of the, the last page is what I'm referring to now. He gave me a tool that really helped me focus in on my family. Um, what makes your family unique? In my family, three things are critical. If you talk to my sons about what kind of house they were raised in, they knew that their parents, we're, as a family, we're sold out to Jesus. We serve Jesus. The second thing was we enjoy spending time together. Um, the funeral, my, I made my son get out of school to drive with me to, to go to Lansing. My, my oldest son got off work because we do family together. We enjoy spending family together. I'm going on vacation. Uh, for two weeks, the boys are coming with. Now that they're older, I can't connect with them like I used to. I used to just go into the room and bring them out. Now I got to make plans, sometimes six months or a year in advance. But it's crucial. It's important to me. So I'm buying vacation so my family can stay connected. Uh, we value time together. And then we value accomplishments. So we celebrate. You graduate from something, you get an A in schools. Heck, you got to see them if you were flunking <laughs> we, we value accomplishment. Do your best. We want to we wanna do that. So this, this tool is, what is your family about? Uh, I, I, I encourage you, when you go home, to think about that. Uh, and then, what is your family's most important priority right now? Think about your family. If it's you and your wife or you and your kids. What is your most important priority right now? you got a kid who's suffering with anxiety and depression. Maybe that's your most important priority, right? Maybe um, you're out of work for, for this season. Getting a job is the next. What is your most important priority right now? 
and then decide on it and what your family will, needs to do about it, right? And then once you decide that, the last one has to do with uh, staying on track with stuff that's important. How many of you have regular times where you can have meaningful conversations with your wife? How many of you struggle in this area? Raise your hand. I do from time to time. Here's where selfishness <coughs> kicks in. I, I remember earlier I said my wife is a night person and I'm a day. You know when she wants to talk? Eight or nine o'clock at night. Eight o'clock and nine o'clock at night, she wants to have these hour-long conversations. You know what I learned over 30 years? I need to stop, get a, get a coffee, and have that conversation. And we'll talk about stuff. Sometimes we'll talk about business, and I'll give her some sales ideas and marketing ideas. Or sometimes I just need to listen to her with her family issues with her sister or mother. Um, but that connection time is crucial to the success of your marriage. I think that connection time, you guys who are over 50, I'm 55. How we communicate with our wives now, I believe is more important than it was then. Because now there's just time. So what are you guys gonna do? Be just looking at each other? What are you gonna do? Well, what do you wanna do, right? No, we, we gotta engage and we've gotta be creative about how we date them. Um, connecting with them, what kind of activities we're going to get involved in. We've got to have fun and it needs to be planned. Values, very important. I want to leave some time for questions. Um, my wife started a business. When I took the job, left American Family, uh, well, I thought I thought took a 50% pay cut to become a pastor. Um, my wife needed to get a job. She was at home raising our kids for about 10 years, not working part-time-ish sometimes. Um, but when I told her I was called to be a pastor, she needed to, to make our budget work, she knew she needed to start working again. And she started at this, this career uh, consulting firm as an <coughs> admin. It later has turned into a business that this year She's gonna make more money than I did. This past year, she made more money than I did. I, I'm fairly well, we're, it's a big church. I'm fairly well paid as a pastor. Uh, this is gonna be the first year of my life where my wife is gonna make more money than me. Are you ready? Raise your hand if your wife has ever made more money than you in her career. Raise your hand. There's a couple of us. Uh, man, it could be that she, is, can your ego manage that? Now, what I, I, I pastored, you know, um, I, sometimes I, I pastor two kinds that, uh, that I don't like. One is the kind who has a wife that's a go-getter and so forth, and they're perfectly comfortable to let her just take care of everything. That kind of guy is going to run into trouble because at some point their wife, who seems like they're okay with that right now, later on is going to say, what do I need this guy for? They're not a spiritual leader, not an eager right? I've seen this play out. The other kind of guy is the domineering kind of guy. He refuses to let his wife do what God has equipped her to do because he's, um, he's a, a self, uh, what is it, I'm not confident. So we don't want to be either. Um, we want to be the head of our households who sees our wife's spiritual gifts and talents and develops and nurtures them. And my wife is going to make more money than I am now. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> 
on the one hand, I'm like, good, everybody needs some retirement. Come on, come on. <laughs> so, so we've got to have enough confidence in Jesus and, um, and enough love for our spouses to let them flourish in, in the ways God is working that out. This is my last point. Then we'll take some time uh, to talk, uh, maybe take questions or do some general stuff. American Family has this one saying, I really believe this. I want you to leave today's session with this idea. Um, the saying is, uh, every dreamer needs to have a dream champion. The, the thing I want you to take from this is, whatever your spouse's dream is, whatever it is, whether it's something professionally or, or family or whatever, that she's really passionate about, you need to be the person that champions that. Um, you need to be their biggest supporter. And uh, I believe that when we do that for our spouses, um, that's why um, I invested in three different uh, CD projects for my wife. And actually, they all cash flowed out. Uh, but I, I would have done it even if we lost money on it. Um, it's because she was deeply into that. Um, my wife started this, um, this business. She's a consultant. She does strategic consulting and diversity and inclusion consulting. I'm always coaching and pushing her forward. She's in the Verona school district. She's on the school district now. Um, yesterday, we were at a... Uh, National Speakers Association meeting in, in, um, in Madison. And I had my name tag said, Lloyd Biddle, uh, husband of death. <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't bother me. But now, that wouldn't have been true 30 years ago. I wouldn't have been mature enough to be able to deal with that. You know? <laughs> but now, in some circles, my wife is in Madison. She's got a bigger name recognition than I do. <laughs> and that's cool. Are you, are you the dream champion for your spouse? Uh, is your spouse a dream champion for you? Um, I believe the first should come first. That we ought to be fully invested in them and that, that they'll reciprocate. They'll see that love and they'll, they'll give that love back to, to us. Um, Here's some, some things I want to follow. Any, any, any general questions about marriage and family and how it changes over the years? And, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in hearing from you guys who are newer in marriage. Questions, thoughts, ideas? I see one here. Go ahead. Um, so I'm, in, I'm engaged uh, yeah. to be married this summer. What is probably some of the most helpful thing that you would say to start off your marriage? Um, like establishing values or whatever yeah. else? Is she, laying a foundation. Does she know Jesus? Yes. That's the first thing. Um, I have 30 years of marriage, but if my wife didn't know the Lord and if we were unequally yoked, I don't think it would have made it. We would have made it. That's the first thing. The second piece of advice I would give you is worship in the same church. Uh, I know couples even today who don't even worship in the same church. I mean, how are you going to be one? when the spiritual feeding you're getting is coming from different places. It could be great feeding, by the way, but it's, you're just not getting it together. So I would say worship together. And the next one I would say 
Um, do some devotional things spiritually together. Read your Bible together. Men, you can be the spiritual leader of your home without being a great Bible scholar. Um, sometimes you can do that by, um, there's, there's, some of us don't like to read, and there's Bible Gateway, you can, you can get the app on with just sound, right? Mm -hmm. You can listen to a chapter with your wife and ask each other questions, right? And if you do that regularly, you're being a good spiritual leader in your home, right? And when it comes to praying for your spouse, you don't got to be a great prayer champion. You just got to be able to know what's going on in your household and ask the Lord to intervene. Don't get caught up in that you're not like whoever you think is a great champion of the spiritual faith. You don't have to be them. You do need to be involved in the spiritual nurturing of your family. You don't have to be a scholar to do that. So I would say, if you guys can start reading together now, that would be a wonderful kind of thing to have. pray together. You know, one of the most things that creates intimacy in my marriage is when I listen to my wife's prayers. Now, when I pray for my wife, it's 30 seconds. <clears throat> when she prays, it's like three, five minutes. I'll start standing, <laughs> and then I'll be like, oh, Lord, you <laughs> But when I listen to those prayers, I get to know my wife at a level I never would have known before. Man, you got a praying wife pray, that prays with you, Man, what a blessing. I believe that that is the key to my 30-year marriage is listening to each other's prayers. Can I answer? Sure. Oh, absolutely. You, absolutely. You said two things in there. Yeah. Listen to your wife. Yeah. And get to know her. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> what is it? First Peter chapter 3, where it talks about we need to live with her according to understanding, right? That's really important to, to know your wife. The Debbie I married when she was 27 is not the Debbie that I have at 58. She's a totally different woman. And um, I had to be interested in that Debbie at 28, 30, 32, 35, whatever. I had to be interested in her so that I'm on board with the one now who's this, you know, this name-taking, butt-kicking entrepreneur woman, right? I've got, I had to know that nurture that woman. Was that helpful? That's good. Other questions from young guys about marriage? I think the other thing is yeah. what could go on with him is my wife and I, even to this day after dinner, we will end up just talking. Yeah. It'll be an hour and it's, oh, geez, you know, now we got to get cleaned up real quick. Yeah. But just sitting down with dinner. Mm -hmm. how, many, how many families are eating in the living room, eating here in front of the TV? Just sit together. I want to stick with that. Here's when I knew I had a problem in my family. My boys were uh, 17 and like 12 or 5 years old. And uh, I wanted to go to dinner on Friday. That's like any other Friday. Yeah. And uh, I said to them, my wife included, we're going to leave the cell phones at home. Because I'm tired of going to lunch and they're, they're on their cell phone. I can't even talk to my family. Uh, we're going to leave the cell phone. Man, you would have thought I was trying to do something. You would have thought I smacked the kid or something. They were like, no way. We're not going to get them. And I had to argue with them. And that's when I knew I had a problem. 
I said, we're so attached to our media that we can't even talk to each other for an hour without buzzing and ringing and, and Facebook and Twitter and blah, 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 blah. I was like, come on, we got, we can do better than that. And so even now with my wife, I'll be like, no, we, we got to leave our cell phones at home <laughs> so that we can connect together, right? And sometimes the problem is us. We're so connected to our technology. Um, when I first started walking, there wasn't even voice working. There wasn't even voicemail. Now they gave us a cell phone and they gave me laptops and I thought this was all great. They just keep me working 60 hours a week. Come on with these tools. <laughs> and so then now you have to have, you have to set boundaries that you didn't have to when we worked in the 80s. Now you got to turn the cell phones off and the laptops off in order to have intimacy in your family. In order to raise your boys and not let the cell phones raise them and your girls, you got to do some more intentional parenting. It's worse now than when I was a kid in terms of the, the, our children's affinity for these, these tools. I'm not down on the tools. You got to manage it in order to have relationship. I see a hand. So I just a little story with uh, yes. the cell phone was. Um, I, I met this guy, um, one of my friends, um, and some years ago yeah. at, at a grocery store where I worked, um, and he had just gotten. A, done being an alcoholic mm -hmm. and he had done drugs when he was younger mm -hmm. and um, I learned that when I would work with him when I asked him a question I just have to go do my job for about a minute to a minute and a half and then he would respond to me because it took that long to get into his brain process and then output you know four or five years later he pretty much recovered I could have normal conversations with that um, and so I've been married almost five years now and uh, you know it was the cell phone thing you know yeah you know when she's playing her cell phone I'll ask her a question and nothing and like a minute later she'll respond to me and I, I started laughing because I made the connection between her and my friend and she's like why are you laughing at me like it's like talking to my friend who was an alcoholic and drug addict <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. the cell phones are really toxic when you're yes. trying to have a conversation because it just you know you go to like restaurants and stuff and people are on dates and they're not and talking they to each other at each other and so we were addicted to that technology. Yep. You ought to take it seriously. All right, I'm done. My time is up. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.